when you started to hit that 50 realm, 60 realm, where people start probably saying, I, I don't want to screw up my back or whatever, <laughs> right. you, you kept going. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the last thing I do that gives me butterflies on my stomach before it, okay? I mean, when I was younger uh, on snow skis, I was crazy. I mean, I jump off cliffs and things. I don't do anything like that anymore. So the, the last thing that, uh, you know, before a, a tournament, there's a little, little feeling in the bottom your stomach. You seem to just have an acceptance of the aging process that I think is very healthy. No sense getting upset about things you can't do anything about. (laughs) Spoken like a true logical uh, left-brainer, I'll tell you. (laughs) Seniors to seniors, whether a senior in college or senior in your mature years, the common denominators of Every stage of life is explored as host Robert J. LaCosta interviews seniors about how they got to where they are and how they are continuing to crush it in their mature years. LaCosta is known as the senior editor because he has interviewed seniors for the past three decades and is perhaps the longest running writer in this narrowest of niches. This podcast affords him the opportunity to pass along the same sagely wisdom that he has received from elders and has admired during his 30s, 40s, 50s, and now. LaCosta is a board-certified hearing instrument specialist who has helped over 10,000 seniors overcome hearing impairment. He draws deeply from the intimacy and privilege of those relationships. And now, it's time for The Age Sage. Well, welcome to another uh, Age Sage podcast. My name is Robert Lacosta, your host, and with me is Robert Reitner. Welcome, Robert. Hello. Robert, you and I have uh, come to know each other, and one of the things you have told me is about your escapades on water skis, and I find that fascinating only because... Um, you turned 13 last week. No, actually, what, what did you turn last week? So, uh, I, in a, a, last April, I turned 79. 79. I'll be 80 next April. Uh, that's a nice way to uh, celebrate water skiing. Now, I have a quick question for you. You mentioned to me in the past that there's a um, water skiing contest or races or whatever events, and your age group is aging out. Now, are you the only person in the... And, and what are the age groups? Okay, in general, once you get uh, there, about, about every five years. So I'm in what's called now Men 9. These are men uh, 75 to 79. Okay, after, depending on your birthday on January 1st. So next year, I'll still be in Men 9, and then I'll be in Men 10. Men 11 is the last category there is. It's just 80 plus? Yeah, right. Uh, are there 80 plus? Yeah, yes, there are. There, there are a few. Uh, there, are, there are definitely some skiers. Uh, there are three events in water skiing. Turn, the water ski tournaments is the term, not okay. race. Okay. Uh, there are three events, and slalom is the most popular. And there's quite, quite a few slalom skiers still. Uh, tricking is less popular, and jumping. There are very few of us left who jump. Uh, and why is that? Well, you sail through the air for fifty feet and come hit, hit the water hard. Uh, you know, it's uh, it takes its toll. Yeah, you've seen some accidents. Accidents happen. Yeah, I, I have hurt myself. There's no question about it. I dislocated a shoulder one time. 
Yeah. I would imagine the first question a young listener would say is, gosh, I'm, I'm not even water skiing. How are you doing it at 79? <laughs> well, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, water skiing for recreationally is not hard. People can pretty easily learn to get up on two skis and ride around behind the boat. Uh, a major step forward is learning how to get up out of the water on one ski. And that usually takes a season or so. Uh, then you can slalom. You can go back and forth. And the sport of slalom, there's a course laid out with buoys, and you go around that. And that is challenging. But that's the most popular sport. That, that sounds like it would be challenging for the guy driving the boat. Well, no, the boat goes straight. The boat goes absolutely straight through. So the, skier, you, you, the skier goes back and forth. Wow. Well, it sounds exciting, and I wish people could see you because you're slim and trim. And um, at 79, that's uh, pretty good. I wanted to ask you, how in the world did you get into it, and how old were you? Because I'm sure we have some young listeners. Yeah, I might have been 14 or 15 the first time uh, we skied behind little 25-horsepower outboards <laughs> where you know, on two skis you get up and just ride around behind the boat, uh, skiing back and forth. Where was that, by the way? That was in Lake Mohawk in uh, Sparta, New Jersey. And then, you know, some, at some point I learned how to get up out of the water on one ski, and then my father got a boat with 90 horsepower, so that could really pull you around. And then maybe in my early 40s, I first saw a slalom course in competitive water skiing, and that changed. That all I started training and, and working, really working at it. Now, uh, at 40, um, and again, this would be great for a young listener because, uh, you know, young people, I call them young. If you're a young listener, you forgive me. But as they're going through the stages in life, you know, they college and then there's career or maybe marriage in there somewhere and maybe water skiing competitively is not the first thing on their mind but somehow or another you hit that magic birthday like Ann Landers used to say life begins at 40 at 40 you were probably deep into your career I mean oh right? yeah for sure so um how did you find time okay, to okay so it was on weekends on you know you, you uh got a had a small house up on uh Greenwood Lake in uh, the New York New Jersey border, and a uh, you know inboard outboard boat, and we would get up early in the morning when the water is calm and go out and ski. And most times we were done by ten o'clock because you know it gets crowded and people are everywhere. There are places you can go to train, and so there was a man-made lake just for water skiing in uh, Owego, New York, and on weekends we'd go up there and get instruction from. Uh, a champion. Mm. So if you put a full work week in, Friday night you go to bed, Saturday morning you're up and at it. Absolutely. And then uh, Sunday as well? Sure. So on a weekend, um, if a young person wanted to get into this or if they've already water skied but haven't really ventured into the uh, competitive realm, they could pull it off with a full-time job and still get a decent amount of training in on a weekend? Sure. And, uh, I mean, I started taking vacation, my vacations. I would go to Florida for a week where you can train there for a whole whole week. And in those days, I could ski every day. You know, so you could, you, could train, you, know, several, you could train several times a day every day. Uh, now when I go to Florida, I ski every other day. Uh-huh. And, and ha- how did your wife uh, handle all okay. this? <laughs> she, she, she took to it. I need her to drive the boat. 
Okay. Okay, so I drive the boat for her. She drives the boat for me. And I taught her, again, that started off on two skis, uh, getting up. And then you get up on two skis and step out of one ski. So you ride, you learn how to ride around on one ski. And then, like I mentioned, uh, a, a hurdle for learning is getting up out of the water on one ski. But if you've already practiced dropping a ski, then the first time you get up, you know what to do. Uh-huh. I imagine that, like any hobby, a passion can drive a, a, a marriage, a passion can drive a vacation. What part of life... As you're going through your career, you're an engineer by... Mathemat- uh, mathematician. Mathematician. And that took a whole lot of effort. And so you have that in play. But now you have this kind of passion. And what kind of balance did you hit? Well, I mean, uh, when I was studying for my PhD in math, I certainly wasn't water skiing, okay? Uh, but after uh, I was working... And uh, decided, like I say, to buy a small little uh, second home on uh, Greenwood Lake and get a boat and get back into water skiing as I had as a teenager. So, you know, you get back into it. And at first, you're just recreational skiing. And then then it gets more, uh, get more committed to it. Yeah. And kids? Okay. I don't have children. So you were able to kind of just ride that out on the weekends? Now, for for at at tournaments, water skiing is a major family sport. There are lots of families where the father, the mother water ski, and so do all the children. And they often have an RV, and they'll travel to tournaments every weekend. Wow, you know, and that's whole, a, it's kind of kind of like skiing. The whole the whole family, yeah. It just are are there any similarities to skiing? Uh, I mean, not much. I mean, uh, your your weights in, in a different place, and uh, water skiing uses a lot of upper body strength that that snow skiing certainly doesn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, certainly, and, and one of the nice things that I, I like to see when I'm at water ski tournaments is how healthy the children are. You know, in this era of childhood obesity yeah. that I see in the neighborhood I live in, it breaks my heart to see an overweight child, seven or eight. And boy, these kids' parents are athletes, and the kids are just slim and trim and having a good time skiing. Yeah, and uh, when you're, you know, growing up in sports myself, when you're involved in an activity or a hobby, you're really not getting into trouble. <laughs> no. I, I, I. And you mentioned, I, I can almost like, visualize the smiles on their face sure, sure. It, especially I, I imagine that slalom or i don't think yeah. the young kids don't jump do they they they, they start uh jumping uh the, the very young ones don't jump but certainly uh 12 year old boys oh, that's what that's what they want to do oh i bet you that's what uh, they want to do. I bet you the higher, the faster, the yeah. crashier. And, and, and they, you, they don't go as, as high as speeds as the, the as, as world-class jumpers, clearly. Uh, but uh, but they, lie, they they start, it's called, the category's called boys one. There's a couple of boys one, boys two, you know, the age groups for teenagers. And then at around uh, 20 or so, it becomes men one. So gender doesn't matter. A lot of girls... Or oh, out sure. there okay, okay. Right. little a, kids, teens. Yeah, there, there's a group of uh, women I know in Florida, and they put out a calendar, and they called it Girls Who Fly, because <laughs> they sail through the air for more than 150 feet. That's amazing. I have not seen that. we got to do a follow-up and get you on video or something, all right? Yeah. Um, now, 
Getting back to, um, you know, even career, as you're going through, where were you educated? Down in Jersey? Okay, I went to Stevens Institute of Technology as an undergraduate in Hoboken, New Jersey, and then graduate school at Stanford Mm -hmm. in California. That's a little bit of difference between Jersey and and California. (laughs) And then you ended back up on the East Coast. I was going to settle. I I really wanted to settle on the West Coast, but I would go back East and uh, went to to work at Bell Labs and uh, get the East out of my system. And then the aerospace industry on the West Coast collapsed, and I never got back to the West Coast. So I, I worked on the East. And I actually, although I, my degree is in mathematics, I mostly worked with economists. Mm-hmm. I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank with macroeconomists and then consulting with microeconomists. So you're one of those classic guys who is able to just kind of balance, you know, work pleasure. My mother used to say, uh, work before pleasure. And you were able to follow kind of two passions kind of simultaneously. And I imagine weight, speed, you know, flying through the air. I imagine all of that gives a mathematician a little advantage. <laughs> uh, not, not, not really. I mean, there's, it's, it's mostly about athletic ability. And I'm not, a, not at all a gifted athlete. Not at all. Everything I get, I get by just training harder than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm outliving my competition now. <laughs> but in, in snow skiing, I, I really trained very, very hard. And I was never terribly successful in, in ski, snow ski racing. Uh, there's guys who just are better athletes, and that's just the way life is. And what about what about water skiing? Okay, well, there guys are better athletes too. But uh, like I say, I'm outliving, and, you know, and they, they, st- they simply stop jumping. <laughs> and when you started to hit that 50 realm, 60 realm, where people start probably saying, I don't want to screw up my back or whatever. Right. You kept going. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's the last thing I do that gives me butterflies on my stomach before it, okay? I mean, when I was younger uh, on snow skis, I was crazy. I, mean, I jump off cliffs and things, and uh, I don't do anything like that anymore. So the, the last thing that, uh, you know, before a, a tournament, there's a little little feeling in the bottom of your stomach. And, and, and you know, that's kind of interesting because um, a lot of people, as they age, they become more conservative. Sure. You, there's still an element of bedazzlement to your style of living. You, I think you want to have something that gives you a little bit of rush yeah. and other people kind of bail out. And I don't know whether they're not just outliving, but maybe some of the people that you competed with, they're still around. They're just yeah, not. They're they, just just, not they, they just don't jump. And what what is the difference? What's the difference between somebody like yourself and someone who kind of uh, maybe, maybe they're more afraid of getting hurt. Yeah. And uh, I just take you know, injuries are part of it. Yeah. But uh, what's what's the dislocated shoulder or half? Yeah. Okay. I got my arm caught up in the handle when I crashed going off a jump and it pulled my shoulder out of it. And it hurt. It hurt, it hurt bad. And how long uh, recovery? Uh, and that, how old were you? Okay, that was about seven or eight years ago. So, so you were in your seventies, and you well, did, probably yeah. And you have a kind of not a major crash, but uh, a, yeah, a major, a major. Okay, I was I was hurting. Yeah, and you came back, and how did you do that? Okay, I no one rehabs harder than I do. I mean, in rehab, they have to hold me back mm-hmm. because you know I would want to push it, and that they you know have you moving your arm and stuff. And I don't want to hold on. That's two weeks away. You're yeah. yeah you're I want to grab a forty pound weight, <laughs> and uh, so that they they. But you know, I recovered. That's great. 
And just if you were talking to young people right now, if, if they were sitting right here in the room with you, what are some of the, you, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, training. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, having a hobby, an interest. Sure. You know, people uh, today are influenced by, you, you can go on YouTube and just, like, learn how to do anything. You could probably almost vicariously water ski to kind of get the feel of it. There's probably somebody there that's a great instructor, has, you know, 10,000 followers and just water skiing. I mean, you can narrow YouTube instruction down to just about anything, including building a deck. What would you say for a young person? It doesn't have to be water skiing, but just about hobbies, interests in general. How does that add to the spice of life, the balance of life, you know? Well, I can only I really address sports, and sports teaches you that if you work hard and train, you will get better. Okay? How, how is that different from what's being kind of taught to some of the young uh, people? Well, this is a thing where everybody gets a, uh, you know, they're only playing for fun, okay? Uh, sports is about competition. And, you know, you can do your very best and still lose, and that's a lesson that you're going to learn in life. There will always be people out there who are better than you are. And that's just part of life. And uh, but, but what part of life? What does it you know, do to you if you lost something you really wanted to win? Well, you, know, you learn that's the way it is. And uh, you, you did your best. As long as you know you did your best, that's all you can do. Yeah, so you're not uh, going back and reliving like, I should have, I should have, I should have. Yeah. And then in terms of Bell Labs in New Jersey, yes. Home, Homedale? Or, uh, I actually was in Whippany and, oh, Whippany. So, and sometime in Homedale, but mostly okay. in Whippany. Okay. And and uh, you retired out of there? Or? No, no. I, that was where I started out of graduate school. Okay. Uh, then I went to work at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, mm-hmm. which is a macroeconomist. Uh, you know, money supplies. There's a lot of stuff in about interest rates in the news today. Then I went to work for microeconomists. That is, you were consulting. My the business product was usually expert witness testimony in court as economists, so antitrust things like that. And then I struck out on my own uh, and ended up mostly teaching people about computers. Uh, and I did some work with currency traders. And so I had my own business for a long time. Uh, and I caught the PC revolution at the right time. What's a long time? Okay, so 84, I started on my own and went through till 90, uh, till 2002. Okay, so that's, that's decent. That's yeah. like a second career, 20 yeah. years. And what, what made you, I, I love to talk about transitions because transitions are about change. And change is about guts. What made you change, and how do you kind of know when to change? Well, you don't. You don't know. I mean, you you take a, a, a leap into okay. And I wanted more time to actually train for snow skiing at the time. And uh, you know, when you have your own business, if you don't have any business that day, well, then you go up to the mountain. Yeah. And where was the mountain? Okay. So uh, I started here in the east, and then I I spent uh, two winters in Squaw Valley, California, and two winters in Sun Valley, Idaho. And then my business took off, and I couldn't take off large amounts of time. Yeah. So the business became profitable, and I socked away money. And and is um, business kind of a a bit of a rush, like flying down a mountain? No, no. I mean, you, when it takes off, you, you yeah, you got to earn a living. And uh, in the computer business, things were constantly changing. 
So I joked in the kingdom of the blind, in the realm of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so I just had to stay ahead of the curve as uh, things rapidly changed. Yeah. And, you know, it started with Apple computers. And when IBM came in with the PCs, things really took off. Yeah. You know, you mentioned inflation. What's your take on inflation? It seems like there's a million different views uh, right uh, now. Everybody's uh, going back to the uh, 1980. And uh, can we assume that 2020s are the same as 1980? No, we have better tools for dealing. We understand things better now than we did then. But, I mean, it took uh, Paul Volcker to break the back of uh, inflation, uh, as appointed by Carter, and he had to cause a recession to do it. And so we're hoping we can bring inflation down without a major recession. But, I mean, we were under Carter. We started to have runaway inflation, and uh, Paul Volcker, then uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Federal Reserve System, put an end to it. (laughs) Yeah, and, and there was a lot of pain right yes. now. You know, a couple sticks of butter for five, six bucks, and uh, if you're a single mom, uh, I don't know yeah. what would constitute a recession in her mind, but I think she's in one. Yeah, well, they uh, the the used to be the definition of a recession was two quarters in a row of negative growth. Mm-hmm. Now, now they they're a little a little more subtle about what you know unemployment and things, but. Well, yeah, it, it's tough. And, and you know, to me, I, I look at the price of things, and, and things just don't make sense anymore to me. Well, I just built a house, and I'm, my eyes are cross-eyed. Yeah. So, uh, but again, um, as a mathematician, you have, you have hope for the economy then. Yeah, sure, okay. And, you know, just to get a little, there's a little, uh, little trick. And it's not perfect, but if you take the number 72 and you divide, let's say, 10% inflation, into 72, in seven years, the price of things doubles. 12%, six years doubles. So that, that's a rough, just to divide. And it's not a perfect formula, but it's close enough that you get an idea. That if, you're, if you're running 8% inflation, every nine years or so, uh, your prices are going to be doubled. I, I can't uh, imagine, as a person who's been involved in business, you yeah. too, depending on if the business is employee-driven, I, I can't see how employers are going to do that. How are they going to afford to pay enough money to have a worker yeah. feed his family? I, I don't get it. Well, so yeah, no, it's, it's a problem that, that inflation can outrun wages. Yeah. So, but basically, you think um, uh, things are driven the same way, but we have more tools to deal with the recession. Better tools, yeah. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of young people out there right now who are probably glad to hear you say that, and and probably a lot of seniors who are on fixed incomes. Getting back to transitions, making the leap of faith, I imagine a person could get sloppy about that. They could, you know, say, I'm going to make a leap of faith, but there's probably some sort of educated Yes, within that, you happen to have a lot of knowledge in math and economics and computers. And so when you made the jump, maybe it wasn't quite as risky. Uh, a bad analogy might be somebody just jumping on a water ski and just yeah. go flying yeah. for it just right away. Yeah, but there's a certain amount of luck involved, too. There's there's no question about that. Uh, you can hit it right. And, and I like I say, I at the time I made the transition, I didn't realize it. But the PC world just took off, and I just got on that wave. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, if 
you know, if I had done it 10 years earlier, maybe things wouldn't have moved so, you know. One thing I've noticed about exactly what you're saying in life is that, especially with regard to personal finances with people in general, whether they're in a private sector or a government sector, is that there are good times and there are bad times. And when you're in those good times, it really doesn't feel like there will ever be bad times. Um, What would you say to uh, say a young person who might be starting to go through the really good times. <laughs> Boy, you, you suck. I mean, I, I always paid myself first. I took 16 to 20% of my salary, whatever I earned, and put it away before I spent anything. I never in my life had credit card debt. The only debt I have ever had was buying was mortgages for a home and of course coming out of college, my first car. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I wanted a sports car, so I. Uh, after graduate school, I bought a sports car on. on yeah, but gra- graduate school, you deserve a piece of yeah, candy. Yeah, so, so I, I that, but other than that first car, the only time I've ever had or paid any interest has been on my home mortgage. And a mortgage, you know, some people would argue, especially guys like Dave Ramsey would say, you know, a mortgage is kind of like paying rent. You got to pay it one way or the other. At mm, least you're right. getting some equity. You know, there, yeah. there's all different. But, but I, I have never run up. Eighteen uh, percent credit card debt ever, ever, ever. If I couldn't afford to pay cash for something, I just didn't buy it. Well, that sounds like a nice piece of advice for young people who have been on the fast track. You got to give it to them. It wasn't always their fault. Their parents might have been doing the fast track thing with credit cards, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you, you you live what you learn. Yeah. And for and, most of their life, my parents didn't even have credit cards. They didn't even have credit cards. The first credit cards were the diner's card. Yeah, I, I remember that. And so you you basically were forced into forced savings. <laughs> there was no such thing as uh, extended credit unless you were one of those guys who walked down Main Street and went into the bank and said, hey, can you give me a note? But other than that, well, Robert, it's been great talking to you. In terms of uh, seniors, let's turn the corner here as we wrap up. I would ask you, what are the senior years like? And let's go, let's do it like almost chronologically. What did you notice like as you got into your 60s and now you're into your okay. 70s? I uh, uh before my 65th birthday, I trained ferociously doing push-ups. And on my 65th birthday, I got up and I did 65 push-ups that morning. Okay? I'm 80, I'm 80 years old now, and I can only do 20 push-ups. And that's just a fact of life. Okay, it doesn't matter how hard I train. Yeah. Okay? So you notice the dimu- you know, your, your physical capacities, um, you know, my ability to ride my bicycle up a steep hill. Mm-hmm. So, so I notice the, um, the diminished physical capacities most. Mental things, you forget things, you know. Your, your short-term memory starts to uh, get away from you. Uh, not long-term. I can remember what I had for breakfast when I was 12. But I, did I brush my teeth last night? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, that uh, Billy Crystalson, where the heck are my keys? Yeah. What about the difference between the 60s and the 70s, though? Okay. Uh, uh, some other things. Okay. okay. So, so. Well, let, for example, you and I talked about. Uh, well, let's let's stay. Let's hold on that for that thought. I'll get back to that. You and I talk about champagne, some wine. Yeah. After a while, you know, it, you've done just about everything. But let's let's stay on the difference between sixties and seventies because I think young people will want to know like what's ahead, and seniors who are already in it or about, you know, say pre-retirees, they're going to say, what's the difference between the 60s and the 70s? Like, are, are it, it's a slow downhill slide, okay? I, I pump iron, 
Okay, and one day you just can't lift as many pounds as many times as you did last week. And when you were young, you said, well, I'm just having a bad day. I'll get right back to it. But you never get, you know, it's, it's, it's a slow, and I keep accurate records, so I know over time uh, there's just a slow d- diminution of your, your physical capabilities. Mentally, it's harder to see. Uh, Mathematics is a is a young man's game. Oh, I bet you. Okay, I mean that's mathematics and physics for some reason uh, are very young men's games, and people do all their good work by the time they're thirty. Uh, I've always been interested in talking to my Jewish friends about how Jewish scholarship flourishes among really old guys, and so I, I've wondered what is it about the characteristics of Talmudic study that old guys are still contributing because in mathematics and physics, they don't. Well, I'll tell you one thing I um, just read uh, last year was about a neuroscientist whose kind of mentor was in his 90s. And he, he, he said he wasn't exaggerating when he said on the white papers he was the lead, <laughs> not him. <laughs> it was the older guy. So there is something to be said about the Jewish community in that realm. The I think it was Norman Lear. I don't know whether he's still alive, but he was pitching screenplays at 99. Uh, I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. But getting back to where most people land, can they... I noticed, uh, I think it was Andy Pettit, a pitcher for the Yankees, and he said something, or maybe I just observed it, being a Mets fan, don't ask me why I'm observing Andy Pettit, but he's, um, as he got older, in the money games, he would go to a curveball, so he's not flamethrowing anymore, but the analogy is, as, as a young man's games can turn into an old man's charm or advantage. He was still winning the games. So somehow or another, though the diminishment is there, the wisdom seems to exponentially not totally make up. You're not going to have an 80-year-old tackling Tom Brady, but you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah so it, 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 you, you do learn some things, but uh, you know there's uh, an inevitability to the way life is going to unfold. No, I know, and I know what this... Neuroplasticity, everybody's thinking we're going to somehow or another age well and better and live forever, but I'm not sure I buy into it. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I buy into neuroplasticity I, 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 yeah. in adaptation, but I don't think there's just some, yeah. uh, some way that if we just have better science and, and this and that, that somehow or another there's going to be a bunch of 110-year-olds walking around doing... Skipping rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just don't think so. Oh. Now, let's get back to something you said that intrigued me. You know, there's only a certain amount of bottles of wine. After a while, you try them. There's a diminishment in new things? Uh, uh, I, I would almost call it, there's a, there's a word, uh, anhedonia. Things just aren't as much fun, okay? I mean, the first time that I ever had a beef wellington and a bottle of Chateau Neuf to pop, boy, it knocked my socks off. Well, I've done it a dozen times. I mean, the first time I had buffalo wings. Uh, you know, that was, <laughs> that, that was, that was, they were really great. Uh, you know, I've had buffalo wings a thousand times, so it's, you know, it's, it's they're okay. Yeah. But uh, it, it just doesn't, things don't have uh, that zip. And with the, with the wine, A, you've had it, and B, your taste, you're, you're not, you're 
taste buds are not as good as they once were. Do you admire those uh, people who still have a little zest when they're uh, sure. in their 95th birthday sure. or something? A- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we, have, we have a patient here, just saw her the other day. I said, did you jump off your boat, in uh, your son's boat in Lake George this summer? And she goes, yes, I did. And <laughs> she's 95. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know whether the zip and the zest is all o- always there, but it, it is interesting. You seem to just have an acceptance of, of the aging process that I think is very healthy. Uh, no sense getting upset about things you can't do anything about. <laughs> Spoken like a true logical uh, right. left-brainer, right. I'll right. tell you. Yes. <laughs> well, Robert, uh, I, I hope we can do this again. I hope we can get a video, maybe a Zoom, and where we can uh, throw in some videos. You said you have some. And what would you say is uh, some of your, in closing, some of the highlights of, uh, you, you know, your hobby? Okay, Um well, certainly, uh, I mean, d- just doing extreme things. I mean, I've climbed the Matterhorn, for Pete's sake. Uh, I've uh, skied in downhill races where you really, really go fast. Uh, all those things are, are fun and exciting. And uh, and what about when you win a water ski? Well, okay, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's just it's just the being out there and doing it more than the, the actual uh, you the, like to win. The but, reward is nice, but it's the actual process. Yeah, it's the actual doing it. Well, Robert, thank you very much. Um, and, and tell me your um, hometown. Where are you okay. from? Well, right now I live in Greenville, New York. By the way, there are three Greenvilles in the state of New York. And so I'm in the one in uh, Green County. In the Catskills. Uh, in the Catskills. Okay, there's one near Port Jervis and one south of here. Uh, so I live up here. Uh, I uh, live on a piece of property that has its own lake on it. Mm-hmm. So I can water ski whenever I want. That's great. And then in, in, in the winter? Okay, in the winter, I spend three months in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I ski three or four days a week. And how many people are older than you out there? Out there, there's a, Sun Valley's an older, is a, is a real older group. There's a, a large group. When I first came to Sun Valley, I often wondered, why are all these people quitting skiing at noon? They come out in the morning, they ski until about noon, and then they go home, and I'll, We'll ski all day, of course. Now, uh, I finish up around noon, like, like the rest of them. Yeah, the legs burning a little bit, or yeah. just yeah. it's just it's just time. Yeah, uh, I had a uh, a patient that um, she actually rode her bicycle right into my exam room, uh, waiting room. I'll never forget it. Not too many people do that. And I got a call uh, years later from her daughter. I think she was in South Carolina, and said, uh, "Mom's been up to her old tricks again." I said, "What? What's wrong? What's wrong?" Because I didn't know something was wrong with her mother. Oh, she went skiing and broke her leg. You know, she yeah. was like 95 or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the end of her skiing career. But she was from Europe, and they, yeah, right. they skied right out of their house, you know. But I, I imagine there's, um, there is an oldest skier in the world. We just don't know who he or she is. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for joining us, Robert. Okay. This is Robert LaCosta, another edition of The Age Sage. Age.